All righty. Well, last Wednesday night, we got down through uh, verse uh, 5, and um, we've already established, of course, that um, the book of Philippians is a special kind of letter because it's a love letter. There's no corrective act, uh, activity involved in it, really no doctrine in it. And um, we spent some time talking about bishops and deacons in the first verse. We talked about uh, what it means when someone, uh, well, what, what Paul uses the word here, grace and peace, and what that meant. And, of course, Paul mentions in verse 3 that he is thankful for every memory of them. And so he remembers them in prayer joyfully. And we, as I said, we ended with verse 5, and I just want to emphasize something in verse 5 again to make sure, because it has an impact on the rest, next couple of verses we're going to be looking at. What does it mean when Paul says uh, in verse 5, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day and until now? We talked about this last Wednesday night. What does he, first of all, what does he mean by fellowship? Partners. Very good. Um, the word there, you know, we think of fellowship, as we said, we think about fellowship meals, we think about getting together, that's being fellowship, and that is, that's all behind that word. But literally, this is a special kind of sharing, a sharing that takes place between partners. So Paul says, for your partnership in the gospel. What does he mean now by partnership in the gospel? How are they partners in the gospel? They walk into the building and go, howdy, partner. All right. They provided the funds for him to be a missionary overseas. Now, we're not going to do it this morning, but we showed you several verses last Wednesday night uh, where Paul makes mention of the church in, 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 in Philippi and talks about how that they were the ones that took care of him when he was on his mission trip. In fact, um, he even chided the church at Corinth. He says, you know, I robbed other churches um, so I could stay here. And one of the churches he was talking about was the church at, uh, at uh, Philippi. Uh, and by rob, he means, you know, you should have been paying me, but I had to take their money for work that they should have been supporting at their place, but I had to take money for them. So he said the partnership, of course, is the fact that they took care of him. And what did we say about from the first day until now? What does it mean from the first day until now? How were they partners from the first day until now? Okay. Um, Lydia, as soon as she became a Christian, uh, when he met her there on the riverbank having that little prayer service, uh, she invited Paul and Silas and Timothy to all come stay with her, and they gave, uh, gave him and his friends a place to stay while they were living in the city. Michael, do you want to say something else? Oh, you want to say the same thing? Okay. All right, that's the first thing. What was the thing about now? He says, even now, literally. What's happening right now? All right, let's give you this turn. Okay. So even from the very beginning when he preached that very first sermon until now, uh, being in prison, they're still supporting him. And they're supporting him in a special way. Not only did they send money this time, what else did they send? I'm sorry, what did you say, Julie? They sent people, okay? And one person specifically, who did they send? Come on, somebody say his name. I like it when somebody else says it. Go ahead, Cheryl, you got it. You can't say it. Go ahead. She nailed it. Epaphroditus. Several years, well, it's been 
oh man, it's been 20-something years now. Um, Hugo McCord, who is a famous gospel preacher, he's passed away now, brilliant man. He even wrote his own translation of the New Testament. But I was at a lectureship many years ago, and um, he was given the title uh, to talk about Epaphroditus. And he was an old man when I heard him many, many years ago. But he would get up and he would hold his Bible up in the air, his little New Testament. He would say, Epaphroditus thrills me. <laughs> and I always remember that for some reason. But uh, that, that's just that's a little side note there. I won't be on the test, I promise. Uh, but yes, they sent Epaphroditus to him. So uh, he's setting the stage now after getting through all the different customary um, uh, things about a greeting in a letter. He's starting to get down into some nitty-gritty, if you will, and he sets the stage by talking about the fact uh, that they were partners. And we're going to come back and talk more about them being partners in just a minute when we get down to verse 7. But notice the next thing he says in verse 6. And this has special application to us, even though we're not uh, in the city of Philippi. He says, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul was very confident. Uh, the idea here in the Greek text is this is some, something that he is very, very confident about. That's the reason why he says being confident of this very thing. And he says that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Now, what in the world is he talking about there? All right, obviously, the day of Jesus Christ is the return of Jesus Christ. One day, Jesus is going to return. It's referred to in other passages as the day of the Lord. Peter loves to use the phrase, the day of the Lord. Um, he brings out in his epistles how that people scoff and how that they think that Christ is not going to come back. But he says, but the day of the Lord will come. And so we're talking about the return of the Lord at the end of the verse, but let's talk about what's in the center of the verse. What does he mean there? All right. God is going to be with them through the whole process. Obviously, the Philippians are people that God is going to be with them. What are we going to say, Julie? Okay. All right. This brings up an interesting point that, that uh, Fred here, or Frank here, brought up. Um, so I don't know where that came from, but anyway, he mentions a good work. Whose good work is being talked about here? It's God's good work. The he in the verse is God. Now, he, he praises them because of their partnership, but he's confident not because of their partnership, as someone might think, well, that's what he's leading up to. No, he's confident because of God's good work in them. In fact, notice what the verse says. That he hath begun a good work in you, started a good work in you, and that good work will last until Christ comes back. Now, what, is that, what does that mean? What is he talking about? How does God at the beginning create a good work in us, and this good work is going to last until Christ comes back? Let me see if I can help you a little bit with the Greek words here, because I think it kind of carries on a little bit more significance. The word uh, begun here in the Greek 
And the word perform, which some of you have complete or made perfect in your, in your translations, which is probably a better translation. But both of those words are very similar. And they're words that are used for sacrifices. The word for begun, begin there, or begun in the King James, is the word that is used to, to signify the beginning of a sacrifice. And the word for complete, or made done, and perfect makes you sound like you're going to be, like it's a, 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 you've been made perfect, which is the case, but it's talking about something being completed, is the word that is used in Greek to show the end of the sacrifice. Now, when you think about it that way, this verse becomes alive a little bit more. And it kind of gives you the idea of how did God create a good work in you that started at the beginning and will last until Christ comes back. What's the theological significance of that? All right, absolutely. When we become Christians, what happens? It's a new life. Why is it a new life, Julie? All that's true. But person, what? We died. All right, died to our sins. And we become sanctified. We become justified. In other words, the blood of Jesus Christ justifies us. It cleanses us from our sins so we can die to the old man of sin, become a new man. And so the idea of here of this good work that's being created into, into us, that good work comes from Jesus Christ. We're not good because we're good. We've, we've emphasized that so many times. Um, in fact, how, among humans, how do you measure good? Uh, good, that person does a little bit better, so they're better than me. So that means, pardon the expression, they're gooder than me. I see. But my point is, we can never, ever be good in and of, our, of, our, of ourselves. It takes the justification. We are justified through his blood, Jesus Christ. And the point, he's, remember, this is, a, this is a letter of hope. This is a letter of joy. He's talking to the Philippians about things that will give them peace, that passeth understanding, that will cause them to rejoice no matter what circumstance they find themselves in. So after he talks to them about they were partakers of the gospel, he brings up really what the gospel is all about. That when you become a Christian from that day point forward, the grace of God is creating a good work in you. Now, don't misunderstand me. You can leave that good work. Or you can turn your back on it and say, I don't want anything to do with this anymore. But yet, at the same time, if we are trying to live faithfully and putting our trust in the blood of Jesus Christ and in uh, God's grace, there is a good work that's being created in you. And that good work begins with the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, as the Greek word brings out, and when Christ returns and we get to go to our eternal home, that sacrifice has now been made complete. Or as the, some translations say, has now been made perfect. What God had started through Jesus Christ, through you in your life at the beginning when you became a Christian, on the day of the Lord, it will finally all come to completeness. Now, that verse looks totally different now, doesn't it? It looks almost like he's just saying, well, you're all doing a good job. No, they're not doing a good job. Well, they are doing a good job, but that's not what this verse is about. 
The verse is about the good job that God is doing with you because of what God has done for you. Remember, he's talking about they were partners in the gospel from the, from the beginning to the even now. And so he kind of carries that thought over and starts talking about the main part of the gospel, and that is the blood of Jesus Christ. And he says, from your beginning until, in a sense, now. And that now, of course, being when Jesus Christ returns. And so a beautiful, beautiful verse when you think about it. When you first look at it, you really don't see all that. But he is going to um, Christ, because of, the, because of Christ's blood, God is going to do a, begin a good work in you. And that's probably why the King James Version uses the word perform. The performing is being done by God. The performing is not being done by you. And boy, that gives me so much more hope and joy. Another reason to rejoice and another reason to have peace because if it was all on me or if it was all on Philippians or if it was all on Paul, uh, we would all be in trouble. Any questions or comments on that? It's like David said, King David, on the threshing floor of Aruna when the, when the guy wanted to just give it to him. He says, I will not sacrifice to the Lord that which costs me nothing because it's not a sacrifice. And that's where he eventually built Solomon built his temple on that very spot where David said that. Another thing that stands out to me when we read these words and we hear Paul writing them or speaking them to the church at Philippi, once again, don't lose sight of the fact, where was Paul when he wrote these words? He was in prison. He was chained to a Roman soldier. He wasn't in the best of circumstances. In fact, he, as we're going to see in, in the next verse, he wanted to be somewhere else. But yet... He knew that God was with him. This is a passage that says God is with him. And he's going to be with him until until Christ returns. Any other comments? Those are very good. All right, we'll look at verse 7. And we miss this in the English, regardless of what translation you have. But this is a very, very emotional verse. I can almost see some teardrops hitting the, the parchment as he writes these words. He says, even as it is meet, a better word there would be right, even as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my hearts as much as both in my bonds and in the defense of the, uh, the defense and combination, uh, confirmation of the gospel, ye all are partakers of my grace. For God is my record, how I greatly long after you, all in the bowels of Jesus Christ. Now, that's a very, very emotional two verses right there. Uh, You can feel the love and the longing that Paul has in his heart for the church at Philippi. But let's look at some things uh, in the verse. Uh, First of all, let's correct one little mistake that's in uh, the King James here. It says, Ye are all partakers of my grace, which is nothing wrong with him saying that. Um, grace means um, well wishes. Grace means, you know, as we talked about, this is a greeting that people used back in his day. Uh, so Paul could be talking about how that they are in his good graces, if you will. But literally, if you look at the Greek, the idea is that ye are partakers with me of grace. And some of you have that in your Bibles. He's not talking about my grace. He's saying you're with me in this. Both of us are partakers of grace. Now, once again, he's flying back up to verse 6, 
Paul, oftentimes when he writes, he will, he will write one thing and that will cause him to lead into something else. And if you look very closely, you can see the connection. He talked about how that God was going to perform a good work in them uh, from the beginning until Christ came back. And so you get to the end of verse 7, he says, you are, you are all partakers with me of grace. But let's see how it ties into what he's saying here. He says, I, I think about you a lot, and, this, and, this, and I should think about you a lot, because I have you in my heart, because you're with me in my bonds, uh, you've been with me in my defense, you've been with me in the confirmation of the gospel. Now, a few minutes ago, he said, we're all partners, and now he's emphasizing that. We're partners, and we're partners in the gospel. Your partners in my bonds, your partners when I had defended the gospel, your partners with me when I confirmed the gospel. Now, how in the world were they partners in this way? Did, were they, he says, your partners with me in my bonds, are they in bonds there with him? Okay, fulfilled his needs, but did, um, and I'm just playing devil advocate here, and I'm going to get to Jeff, and I'm going to get to Roger. Um, did they actually um, maybe defend the gospel with him when he was in another town? Are they there personally? All right, I'm, gonna, now I'm bringing that up because I want to say something. It's just meant, Jeff, I'll go to Jeff. <laughs> All right, fighting the same battle, I like that. Working toward the same thing, okay. I like all that. Let me share something with you and kind of give you what I think Paul is is talking about here because I can identify with it. Uh, Many years ago, many years ago, I decided I was going to uh, quit my job at the bank and go into full-time preaching. But I wasn't going to go into full-time preaching without going back to school. I had a degree in business finance, and that just doesn't work well if you're going to t- preach the gospel. So I decided to go back to school, get two more years of schooling just in Bible. Well, quit my job, sold my house, sold one of my cars, and moved to Tennessee to go to school. I wrote a lot of different churches. And I said, listen, I'm going to go to school full-time for two years, and I, don't, I just don't have the time to work. I'm going to be taking the equivalent of, of 60 hours a semester to get this done. And um, I said, I'm not going to work, and I'm, my wife's not going to work. Can you support me? And thankfully, there was a lot of good churches, even the church here in Monroe, which I'm thankful for, uh, supported me while I was in, pre- in preaching school. But oftentimes when I'd write a thank you letter for, this, for the support that these churches gave me, I would often remind them of this. But any time I stood in the pulpit, they were standing there with me. Any time I got into the baptistry with someone and baptized them, they were baptizing that person with me. Whenever I had a Bible study and people were, were sitting there listening to me talk to them about God's Word, it was just like they were standing beside me doing the same thing. I think that's what Paul is talking about here. Because of their support... Because they were partners, they were doing the exact same thing with Paul, even though they weren't there. It was just like they were in, they had a pulpit back then, it was just like they were in the pulpit with Paul. It was just like they were in the baptistry with Paul. And now that he's in prison, it's just like they're in prison with him. 
because they are partners when it comes through the gospel. And he brings that point home at the end of the verse because the gospel is grace. And just like they have been partakers of him uh, as far as his, um, partakers and partners as far as their support, it's all based on the fact that they are partners in the grace of God. They all have the same goal. They all have the benefit of the same grace. And so that's kind of what Paul is driving at here. And that's why he has such a close, close relationship with them. Um, like I said, this is a very, very emotional uh, sentence that he makes here. But look what he says, uh, uh, well, verse 8. He says, for God is my record. God knows this. And God, if he was here, he's making a play on words, would testify that this is the case. This is as, as sincere and as honest as I can make it. For God is my record, how greatly I long after you. All in the bowels of Jesus Christ. Now, the word bowels there is a, a very antique word from the King James. What is something else that somebody has? Affection of Jesus Christ. What do you have, Sharon? In the ancient world, they believed that a person's emotions and feelings came from their bowels. I don't know why they, they thought that, but that's what they decided. They thought, you know, this is the deepest part of the body. And therefore, from top to here, from, from bottom to here, it all ends right here. So this must be the center of the body. And therefore, that's the center of you. And that's where the deepest part of you is. We sometimes use the phrase, you're in my heart. Well, once again, that's not a real thing because the heart, all it does is just pump blood. There's no really emotion there. It just goes, you know, that's all it does. But we use that same phrase, the phraseology, and they just use it in a different way. What are you going to say? Okay, there you go. There you go. you got a gut feeling about something. Um, but the point is, and, and Sharon, what translation do you have? What is that? The New Living Translation. The idea is as deeply as Jesus Christ loves you, as compassionately as Jesus Christ loves you, that's the way that I'm trying to love you because I love you that much. I long to be with you. If, there, if there's any place I'd rather be right now, it would be with the brethren at Philippi. Now think about that for a moment. Of all the places that the Apostle Paul could be, um, you know, when a person's released from prison, I'm sure they go out and get a hamburger and french fries, but mo most people, or maybe pizza, depending on what their favorite food is they've missed, but most people... When they leave and they've been separated from people they care about, usually the first place they'll go is the place that means the most to them. Might be home, might be a wife, might be a, another family member. But Paul is basically saying here, put, God put me on the record. If somehow or another I could get out of here, I love you so much, there's no place I'd rather be than you, the church at Philippi. Now, why would he say that? What, you know, think about this from your standpoint. Uh, why would he want to be with them rather than anywhere else? Okay, well, let's piggyback on that a little bit. Was Paul married? No, he said, I had the right to have a wife. He says, you know, Peter, he, he had a wife. That's fine. You can have a wife and be a very good missionary. Paul, Paul didn't have a wife. 
He didn't have a wife to go home to. Well, what about family? Paul, I know you got family. You got father and mother. In fact, there's a little discourse where you talk about how that you're a Hebrew of the Hebrews from the tribe of Benjamin. You've got evidently a very proud legacy of family. All right. Paul maybe doesn't have a physical family anymore that wants anything to do with him. In fact, it's odd. You read all of his epistles. You go through the book of Acts. doesn't mention anything about any brothers or sisters. doesn't talk about his mom and dad. doesn't talk about how that he talked to them about Jesus Christ and how they became Christians. doesn't talk about how that they were in time were unbelievers, but because of the preaching that Paul had done and because of the miracles that he had performed, I'm proud to say that I finally converted my family. Doesn't say anything at all about that. And it may be very well that they kicked Paul out of the house proverbially. Shunned him, says, I'm not going to have anything to do with you if you believe in that blasphemer Jesus Christ, that false Messiah, that one that was killed on a cross. <laughs> That's who you believe in? I've known people who became Christians and their family won't have anything to do with them. When Karen and I were first dating and married, there was a very big uh, campus uh, ministry at Winthrop University there in Rock Hill. And um, there were kids there who became Christians while they were in college, and their parents told them, you don't come home. You just don't come home. They were rejected. And so perhaps that's what Paul is dealing with here. His physical family wants nothing to do with him. But he has a spiritual family in the congregation there among the Philippians, that if he ever got the opportunity to get out of prison, that's the first place he's going to go because there is such a bond, such a, such a love there. And so when you think about it this way, then these verses take on a whole new meaning and you feel the emotion that's happening here. Uh, some, you know, we've talked about how this is kind of like a love letter. Well, here's where the love is. He says... You know, for God is my record, how greatly I longed after you, all in the bowels or the emotional center of Jesus Christ. He wanted to, to be with them. But any questions or comments on that? The Apostle Paul was never a man to sit around and do nothing. Uh, when he was a Jew, he was a Jew through and through. And now that he's a Christian, he's a Christian through and through. And he put it as his mission uh, to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. Good point. Verse 9. And this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment. In other words, Paul's making another tie in here. I love how he does this. He was talking about how much he loved them. Well, that brings him up. Well, let's talk about love for just a second. He says, and this I pray. And then he's going to say some things that he hopes happens to them that he hopes that they'll work on. And I think that's significant that he begins this verse with, and this I pray. That reminds us that before we undertake any endeavor, if we want to do better in anything, if we want to make anything happen, the starting place should always be prayer. And so he wishes some things for the church at Philippi, and he says, and it's going to begin with me praying for you that this happens. And the first thing he says, that your love may abound yet more and more. 
Why do you think that Paul wants their love to abound more and more? He's already, they've already shown how much they love him. They've already taken care of him. Uh, he can feel that love so greatly that he talks about if there's any place he'd rather be right now, he wants to be with them. So why in the world would he say, I wish your love was better and better, more and more? What in the world does that mean? All right. How they come about that love is in knowledge, but don't get away from what I'm saying here. He's saying he wants their love to be more than what it was. And then the idea is he wants it to be even more than that after they get to that point. What is that? So what, what's, what's he saying there? All right, unconditional commitment. All you, everything you're saying is true, but I want to make sure you get the flavor of what's happening here. If you were to ask Cheryl um, this question, um, Cheryl, I think I've reached a certain level with our love. I think I love you enough now. Is that okay? <laughs> Here's the thing I want you to think about. When you really love someone, is there ever the point where you get there and say, well, you know, I think I love this person enough now. I think I'll stop. Karen, um, we've been together over 30 years. I've loved you every day of those years. And my love has grown all through those years. I love you more and more. But today I think I'm going to stop. Absolutely, absolutely. And that's basically what Paul is saying here. He wants the love that the Philippians brethren have to keep growing and growing and growing. And it's not just love for him as brought out in the rest of the verse, and some of you have already brought out uh, in the text. The love that he wants them to have, and this goes back to what he's talked about already in this book, the love for the gospel and the love for Jesus Christ. Okay? The more you're with someone, the more you know about them, and the more you love them, or in some cases you might not love them. But, um, but the thing that makes them them and the special bond that you have is because you spend so much time with them. Um, I love my wife so much because I spend more time with her than I do anybody on the face of the earth. Uh, you love your children more than you love other children because you have spent more time with those children than you have any other children on the face of the earth. And you can see what I'm talking about here. So if that's applied to Jesus Christ, if you're going to love him more and more every day, or as the text says, that your love may abound yet more and more, we've got to spend more time with Jesus Christ. Now, how are we going to do that? Well, as Michael's already brought up, it begins with knowledge. True love comes from knowledge. Um, they talk about love at first sight. Well, there might be somebody you're immediately attracted to at first sight, but as you come to know that person, you find out if you love them or not. You find out some things about them that, um, that you didn't know, and that's where you make your decision about whether you love that person or not. I'll be honest with you. I know some things about Karen y'all don't know. I'm not going to tell you. But even knowing those things, I still love her. And boy, she knows a lot of things about me. Uh, y'all heard that. But she, but she still loves me. And so the point in the text is, 
Paul wants them, their love to keep growing, abounding and bounding. And the only way that's going to work, first of all, is going to be in knowledge. He's building, he's building some stepping stones here. It starts off with knowledge. You've got to know about something before you can love it. All right? So now that you, he understands and appreciates we've got love, this love is based in, on, on knowledge, and once you've got knowledge, King James Version says, in all judgment, literally the word is discernment, howing to discern between things or make decisions about things. Yes, understanding. Um, when you weigh two different things, uh, as far as what is best is the idea here. If your love's where it's supposed to be and it's based upon knowledge, then you can start making decisions based on the proper understanding to know what is right. Now, he's right here, he's already starting to build the case as he's going to get through this book that if your love's what it's supposed to be and it's based upon the knowledge of Jesus Christ and what he's doing for you, as you face different situations in life and whether or not it's going to bring you joy or it's going to bring you sadness, you've got to be able to discern what is really important. Love, based on knowledge, gives you discernment to find out what is really, really important. Um, once again, I can maybe bring up some little nitpicky thing that maybe uh, Karen irritates me with, or maybe some uh, picky thing that she could bring up about me that just irritates her. Uh, maybe it's the way I hold my pencil or something. You know, I'm just bringing something up silly here. But because of, lo- of love... And the knowledge that I have of her, I'm able to discern, you know, that's really not that important. How she holds a pencil or, or how she throws a dart at a dartboard. I'm just breaking up stuff. My point is, you know, some things may irritate us that a spouse does or somebody else does, but because of our love for each other, we're able to discern, well, you know, that's really not that big a deal. Now, keep in mind that Paul is talking to a church Keep in mind, he's talking to brothers and sisters in Christ. He just said, how I long to be with you. Can you imagine if each one of us had the same longing for each other here in this congregation? Can you imagine what our attendance would be? Can you imagine what our worship services would be like? If we just longed to be with the brothers and the sisters. And for that matter, just long to be with Jesus Christ. And I think sometimes the reason why we don't have the longing that we do between each other is because um, we don't know how to discern properly. Uh, We get caught up in the warts and the moles and the other things, the little things that irritate us about our brothers and sisters in Christ. But if we grew in love for one another and had more knowledge of each other because of that love, then we'd be able to discern and say, well, you know, that's really not that important. I love these people. I want to be with these people, and nothing's going to get in the way of me being with these people. Uh, that's what he's alluding to here. I saw, Michael, was your hand up, or you just... Paul was in a prison over a 1,000 miles away. Where did he want to be? He wanted to be with them. Well, why is that the case? Because he spent so much time with them, and love them so much that there's no place he'd rather be than be with the brethren there at Philippi. And therefore, um, that door opening magically? Oh, it is because I've gone too far. I'm five minutes late. But anyway, we better stop there. Thank you so much for your comments.